0: Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and each week I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Men in black, military, strange lights, and a craft viewed by multiple witnesses from different directions. Not one, but two earth tremors. Is this all a 10 million to one coincidence, or is there something more to it? Join me tonight as I'll discuss the fascinating Berwyn Mountain case from Wales in 1974. So good morning, everyone. I trust you've all had a happy, healthy, and productive week. I hope that you're all safe and sound and well in your neck of the woods. I know that the, uh, the coronavirus has really gotten, had its uh, second wave of cases, as the saying goes. It's especially uh, affected heavily uh, three of the top five states. So I've got uh, people that, uh, you know, really mean a lot to me, very close to the program. And so I hope everyone's safe. You know, California, Texas, and North Carolina have all been heavily affected. And as always, I just want to give a few shout-outs, you know, to uh, Lisa and Harry in North Carolina, Chris in Illinois, Eddie in California. Also, as always, thank you to Scott in Missouri and uh, the continuing support from his uh, podcast, Scott and the team at the Old 77. Uh, again, thanks, thanks, Scott. Thanks for everything you've helped me do. And, uh, of course, uh, also just want to give a shout out to a very close friend of the show in Texas, Adriana. Thank you, as always, for your support. And uh, I know things right now are tough with the uh, with the second wave of uh, COVID cases hitting Texas and that uh, you've got very full day. So stay safe. All the people who have reached out on Instagram. And, um, yeah, you know, just, again, thank you, everyone, from the bottom of my heart, for listening to the program, for continuing to support me. For those of you who have sent me kind words of encouragement, I I do appreciate it. It it means the world, and it really helps me keep this program going. I do have uh, one last special shout-out on today's episode, and that shout-out is to Lisa in Chicago. Uh, Lisa is a big fan of the show. Um, I follow one of Lisa's family members on the Quite Unusual pod, which is an excellent program. So, Lisa, welcome to the show. I'm really glad that you've, uh, you've enjoyed it. Don't be afraid to reach out if there is anything you want to know more about or if there's something that you would like me to cover over. I do have a couple other uh, announcements just to make quickly before I get into the news of the damned. Uh, The first announcement is that uh, just basically keep your eyes peeled, folks. Uh, Very soon I'll have a major announcement. So uh, this announcement will be one of the biggest steps forward for the program uh, in its history so uh, make sure that you keep keep your eyes out for a announcement at some point uh, this week i'd really hope to been able to have that announcement by the time that i recorded this program but uh, unfortunately uh, things are just running a bit behind the second announcement is simply that i'm again trying to get back into the uh, get back into the flow of Uh, announcing programs in advance so again at the end of the episode i'll just remind you but the next episode will be about a cryptid and it's a special request from a listener in michigan Uh, and that uh, episode will be about melon heads so if you haven't heard about melon heads before i've only caught bits and pieces Uh, i'll be quite interested to do my research this week it should be quite a uh, quite a fascinating topic so make sure that you tune in for that next program so, without further ado, uh, we will now get into the news of the damned. For those for those new listeners out there in the audience, um, one of the staples of the paranormal, one of the uh, you know founding fathers of the paranormal as we know it now, one of the first people to categorize and um, you know really release some of these topics uh, for general consumption was Charles Fort. And Charles Fort believed that uh, any information that was excluded by science not explained not given its fair fair chance to be heard uh he termed as damned data therefore uh I do this segment every week I try to come up with three articles for you uh that are you know in this vein in the paranormal or the unexplained field and something that Mr Fort would be interested in himself and that segment is always called the news of the damned in honor of Mr Fort So the first article I have here, and as always, folks, there's always a link in the show notes to all of these articles I discuss. The first one here is from www.disclosed.tv. And uh, this was posted on June the 14th um, uh, by Gray, it looks like. And it says, Ancient City Rest Beneath the Waves Near Cuba. Now, I've heard of this before, folks, but if you haven't, it is quite a, you know... uh, quite a divisive topic, but at the same time, if it is real, it just goes to show what so many people have thought that, you know, there is much more to this world than we know, and that science has not really scratched the surface of what's gone on in our in our fairly recent past, you know, not even counting back the millions and millions of years that most most scientists agree the Earth has been here. So um, this article starts out by UFO hunter Scott C. Waring, who previously claimed he spotted a fleet of underwater UFOs off the coast of Greece. And also for those of you who have been listening to the show, he's also claimed to have spotted things on Mars. He's claimed to have spotted things in Indonesia. I'm not saying that he has or hasn't. I'm just saying that, you know, he does seem to be, uh, you know, out there making claims quite a bit. Um has recently announced yet another discovery he made while browsing Google Maps, which involves strange ruins located beneath the sea near Cuba. According to Waring, having found what he described as two pyramids and a sunken ship, he recalled previously hearing about some U.S. servicemen from a submarine going into a bar in Cuba and shooting off their mouths about an underwater ancient city they found off the coast of Cuba. And uh, sorry, folks, I thought there was a bit more to it. But um, that, <laughs> that looks like that's the end of the article. There's a little bit more commentary down here. And uh, there's a user on the forum saying, This was found years ago. A guy was, was SO at Readings found them. Scott, he's known as someone else here, m- must know who he is. 100% proof of whatever he's promoting. Reckons he finds everything. I spotted a huge lump off New York underwater about 5 kilometers across. It looks like it's a mountain. That moves and leaves a huge trail behind it on the ocean floor. There's been a couple more found since. I don't know what they are, just strange. Anyway, I told him through his webpage, and three months later he, quote, discovered it, unquote. If you read all his reports, he found just about everything. He must spend every waking second outing Google Earth, Moon, Mars, all NASA, ESA, every UFO, video, pics, etc., etc., etc. Now, obviously, that's just one user on the um, forum's interaction. I don't know what to think of uh, Mr. Waring. Um, You know, I don't know a lot about him. But I do know, uh, as they've said here, he does make a lot of claims, and he does claim to discover a lot of things. So, as with any of these things, you know, folks, take it with a grain of salt, but again, also always remember what uh, Richard C. Hoagland famously said that it only takes one white crow to prove that not all crows are black. So, in other words, all we have to do is discover one lost, buried civilization or city that's, you know, outside of the geological record that uh, mainstream science would have you believe. And uh, we have then proven that there is something to this, you know, idea of lost uh, and missing civilizations. So the second article here is from www.coast2coastam.com. So for those of you who don't know, that is the uh website of the program that Art Bill started and is now hosted by George Norrie. And uh this article was published on June the 14th, so just a couple days ago, and is titled Giant Squid Washes Ashore in South Africa. A giant squid was found stranded on a breach in Britannia Bay in, in South Africa with a stretch of some 16 feet, including its tentacles. So that's about uh, five five and a bit meters. The beach creature was not even fully grown. Richard Davies, who shot video of this encounter, asked a man to pose next to the squid to show off its enormous length. While an effort was made to roll the giant cephalopod back into the water, sadly they could tell it was in the process of dying. It was still pumping out ink, and I touched one of its tentacles, which sucked onto my hand, and I actually had to use some force to remove it, Davies told News 24. Such a creature washing up on shore in that area of the world is considered a rare occurrence. Well, folks, for those of you who don't know a lot about giant squids, um, there are theories uh, that these giant squid are what mariners mistook for krakens and uh, sea serpents and some of the other, uh, you know, seaborne monsters of the past. Uh, giant squid do grow up to quite a large length, you know, over 100 feet long in cases, which is over 30 meters. Uh, they tend to stay in the very deep water and only surface when they're about to die. There have been a few cases in the past, um, ironically, uh, a few here in New Zealand in recent years, of giant squid surfacing and being captured by, uh, you know, ships taken ashore and dissected at our national museum here. So again, you know, it's just one of those things. This is definitely something that was right down Mr. Fort's uh, alley. He covered a lot of sea monsters and purported uh, unexplained creatures in the oceans. So, uh, you know, again, uh, there's not much to this story, but there is a video here you can watch if uh, you go over and watch it. And, um, you know, again, uh, this is not the type of creature that I would want to tangle with they're quite aggressive as well from everything I understand. So um, yeah, definitely not um, something you would want to get on the wrong side of. And our last article here is a very fascinating one. And it is very much in the vein of the last week's episode that I did on the Mount Victoria Peak uh, treasure. So this is another story about lost treasures, which is much more recent. Uh, It is something that many of you would have heard of before, or at least would have heard conjecture about. And this article was sent to me by uh, Harry in North Carolina. So as always, Harry, thank you for sending me in the article. And this article is from allthat'sinteresting.com. And it's titled, 75-year-old diary of SS officer may reveal 28 tons of stolen Nazi gold, published 28th May, 2020. Uh, Now, I'm sure they'll discuss it in here, but gold has basically been at an all-time high for the last few months. Uh, So if you did find this gold, and you could lay claim to it, now would be the time to cash it in. Uh, The writer was Natasha Ishek, and again published on May 29, 2020. The diary also lists 10 other locations across Poland, Germany, and the Czech Republic where Nazis hid their loot. The hunt continues for a massive stash of gold treasure that belonged to the Nazis. A newly discovered diary that belongs to an SS officer points to one of the possible hidden locations of Nazi gold, an old castle in Poland. According to the Daily Mail, a treasure trove of 28 tons of gold bars, jewelry, and other valuables is believed to be hidden 200 feet underground at the bottom of a detonated well shaft. The well itself is located on the property of the Hochberg Palace, near the city of Wroclaw formerly the German city of Breslau, where the Reichsbank stood. Clues to the whereabouts of the Nazi gold were discovered by researchers from the Polish-German Silesian Bridge Foundation, who studied a diary written by an anonymous SS officer. However, they suspect that the diary was written by SS officer Egon Ollenhauer, the liaison between SS officers hiding Nazi-looted treasures and rich SS members who wanted to hide their valuables. The foundation said that the 75-year-old diary was uncovered from the Germanic Mason Lodge, which Olenhauer was a member of, known as the Quindlenburg. The Masonic group kept it for decades after World War II ended, giving up the diary to the foundation 10 years ago as a gesture of atonement for their involvement with the Nazis. The diary was authenticated in Germany, but has not been verified by the Polish Ministry of Culture following the foundation's presentation of the diary to the government. Still, researchers are confident that the information detailed in the SS diary could hold the keys to uncovering the hidden treasure looted by the Nazis. According to details inside the diary, the SS officer collaborated with Gunther Grundmann, an art conservator, who was ordered by Heinrich Himmler to catalogue and hide the Nazis' stolen art and valuables from the Allied troops. It also noted that at least 28 tons of gold were buried inside the well shaft, on the grounds along with the bodies of several witnesses. The surface of the well was detonated, so the treasure may be hidden away forever. The diary entry reads, Dr. Grunman and his people had already prepared in the grounds of the palace a deep well. The following was placed at the bottom in crates, jewelry, coins, and ingots. Many of them were damaged. They had traces of gunfire. After we finished everything, the well was blown up, filled in, and covered. If the information in the diary is true, the treasure buried at Harchburg Palace well could be worth nearly... 1.5 1.5 billion dollars in today's currency. Roman Ferminiak, head of the Polish-German Silesian Bridge Foundation, believes the treasure at Hochberg Palace is one of 11 hidden Nazi treasure spots around southern Poland, eastern Germany, and parts of the Czech Republic named in the diary. The Hochberg Palace is a 16th century structure that was owned by the aristocratic Hochberg family, who were huge landowners in Silesia since the 14th century. The current owners of the palace have already granted the researchers permission to investigate the well shaft in question and have even set up a perimeter fence and CCTV security in the vicinity. But researchers said that investigating the treasure without support or approval from the government has been difficult, so they decided to go public with their findings in an attempt to pressure the Polish government into investigating the alleged Nazi loot. Hopefully the researchers will be able to get to the bottom of this case soon. Now folks uh rumors of Nazi gold and treasure throughout Europe has been a long standing topic. Um, you know, there are cases of some of this gold being found. Uh, there are rumors that uh, Nazis escaped to Argentina and spirited away some of these treasures here uh, There are lots of stories about uh, you know, Nazis keeping treasure in Swiss bank accounts that still has not been turned over to authorities. And obviously, this is a very um, dicey situation with all of the European governments uh, that would have had their national treasures looted. And then obviously, also the Jewish, the gypsies, the uh, all of the groups that had uh, their property stolen from them before being shipped off to uh, concentration and prison camps. So, uh, yeah, it is definitely one of those things that, you know, in my life I'm sure we are going to get some of these things turning up. Huge holes of gold like this will be very difficult to prove where they came from, especially if the Nazis did what they did earlier in the war, which is as they rolled into countries like Belgium and the Netherlands and Liechtenstein and... um, Slovakia, Austria. They basically shipped the gold from these central banks back to Berlin, and then they melted the gold down and restamped it with uh, with the German government's marks. Therefore, it made it very difficult to prove where this gold was taken from. So yeah, it's always a developing story. I mean, there was a case not too long ago about the, the supposed gold train buried in a tunnel in Poland, and there was a gentleman claiming that it's there, and he was trying to get the Polish government to uh, help him Dig it out. It's in a collapsed rail tunnel, is, is is what he claims. So I have no doubt that there would be treasure that has not been discovered, looted in World War Two on both sides. There would be, there would be treasure that was looted from the Russians in Poland and some of the treasures that the Russians would have buried as they retreated into Russia as the Germans attacked them. It's a very fascinating topic, and as I say, it's something that I'm sure we'll learn more about. So thanks again, uh, Mr mr harry there in north carolina for sending me this article i will make sure that i include a link in the show notes for you all and uh just before i get into the main topic tonight i just want to give a bit of a precursor uh apology if i have butchered any of these welsh uh place names i do apologize welsh is not a very easy language Uh, to get your head around if you haven't dealt with it a lot before. So uh, anyone out there who knows Welsh, if I butchered anything, let me know, and apologies in advance. From giants and dragons to King Arthur and Merlin, from the Holy Grail to the devil himself walking the land, Wales has a long and storied history and too many myths and legends to even cover briefly in one episode of The Paranormal Sun. In 1958, author Gavin Gibbons wrote, by Spaceship to the Moon, a sci-fi book which featured a UFO landing on the Berwyn Mountains in Wales. Sixteen years later, in 1974, those same mountains would again be the focus for a story involving a down UFO, but this time, many said the story was for real. In the northeastern corner of Wales, dividing Shropshire from the Snowdonia region, stands the Berwyn Range. This area has had its share of legends, from tales of wild men similar to Bigfoot, to numerous ghosts and hauntings the specters of the hounds of hell, ghost bombers, big cats, and even lake monsters. Between the spring of 1973 and 1974, a new and perplexing phenomenon arose, phantom helicopters. Over 100 good sightings occurred of these objects, flying at night and during poor conditions when helicopters usually would not fly, and often in very dangerous terrain and at unsafe altitudes. Interestingly enough, these sightings stopped abruptly, immediately after the case I'm about to describe. A still-secret police investigation has never been released, and no one explanation has ever been found that explains most or any of the Phantom Helicopter sightings. Something was flying around in these northern Welsh skies, and many of the witnesses stated that these objects appeared to be searching for something. The Berwyn Range is an isolated and sparsely populated area of Moorland in the northeast of Wales. The area is wild and largely vegetated by heather, about one meter or three feet thick. With some acidic grassland and bracken, it is not very popular for hill walking or scrambling since the peaks are lower than those in nearby Snowdonia. However, the topmost peaks are rugged and have a distinctive character. Nearby towns include Langothlin and Corwin, which are popular tourist destinations. Cater-Berwin is the highest point in the Berwin range. In the highest significant summit in Wales outside of the national parks. There is a standing stone in the area. This stone was re-erected in June of 2008. It was a cold, damp, and moonless night in Sandrislo, a small village built around a broad stream at the base of the Berwyn Mountains in North Wales. The village postmaster was watching television with his wife when it felt like his house parted company from the foundations. The sodden earth beneath the village trembled, and the grey slate houses shook as if Bronwyn the Giantess, a mythical goddess whose throne towered above the village, had risen again. Crockery flew off shelves and smashed onto flagstone floors. A deep rumbling accompanied the tremor, striking terror into the local community. The postmaster rushed outside and turned to check on his post office, a low-slung slate roofed cottage in the centre of the village, whose front room had been converted into a shop. But his eye was drawn to the left, where he saw a fireball in the sky. Could a plane have crashed, he wondered? Neighbors also stood and gazed skywards. The postmaster cast an anxious glance over the yard to the right, with its underground petrol tanks and rows of gas cylinders, and then set off up the mountain to see what had happened, and perhaps offer help. Police who had commandeered another Land Rover set off after him. A hunting party was already up on the mountain, having finished their rabbit shoot. But other than the hunter's vehicle, the searcher saw no one. They climbed the hill until they were surrounded by heather and grass. The black and almost indistinguishable masses of the magnificent Berwin Mountains extended to the southeast like giant knuckles. By the light of their requisitioned headlamps, police officers scoured the tufted landscape for anything untoward. There must be some clue as to what happened, the officer in charge thought. He could see white lights in various directions, but none of them looked unusual. That's it, one of the party cried out as something flashed in the sky, but the flash was subsided as quickly as it had appeared. Eventually, the searchers accepted that there was nothing to be found and descended, baffled. No one in Sandrislo found anything on the mountain that night. In the following days, search efforts intensified. Royal Air Force personnel, scientists, journalists, and UFO enthusiasts combed the surrounding land and interviewed locals at length, but came up with nothing. The string of strange events was officially recorded as a coincidence of natural phenomenon. An earthquake measuring between three and four on the Richter scale, by no means a major quake, but uncommon by UK standards, and a shower of bright meteors that burned up somewhere over the UK. Local teenagers joked about seeing little green men at school, while locals reveled in the attention, which claimed their part in the night when teams of police and military descended on the area, and how, 48 hours later, Sandrislo, felt like the center of the universe. Within months of the event, UFO investigators in the north of England began to receive official-looking documents from a group called Aerial Phenomenon Inquiry Network, or APN. These documents claimed that an extraterrestrial craft had come down on the Berwins and was retrieved for study by an APN crash retrieval team, which had been on the scene within hours of the event. More significantly, Appen claimed there had been a key witness to the UFO crash who they were recommending for hypnotic regression. Hypnotic regression was at that time virtually unknown in the UK UFO community. In fact, besides having been used in the 1961 Betty and Barney Hill abduction, hypnosis was not used within ufology at the time. It would be another 20 years before Margaret Fry, a world-renowned UFO investigator, unearthed the evidence that turned the case into what it is today, Wales' answer to the alleged alien crash at Roswell, New Mexico, and one of the most high-profile UFO counters in the UK, often dubbed Ross Welsh. By the time Margaret retired to a Welsh village from Kent, she was one of the premier UFO researchers in Britain, an older, more petite Dana Scully, with soft curls, large almond eyes, and a quirky British Indian lilt. Now in her 60s, she had 30 years' worth of investigating experience, but remained hungry for signs of alien life. Lately, however, life seemed to be throwing curveballs at her. Moving to Wales, a country with majestic mountains and a long coastline, brought her close to her family, important now that she was older, but posed a number of problems. Margaret was afraid of heights and the ocean, to name two. She had never learned to drive a car, and bus services in rural Wales were either unreliable or non-existent, leaving her at the mercy of friends and family for transportation. And then there was the language. She found the Welsh place names with their sparing use of vowels impossible to remember. People were constantly telling her about paranormal incidents, and she could never decipher where they took place. Margaret had grown up in India, a magical land that had opened the eyes to endless possibilities and instilled in her a passion for knowledge and discovery. She was a third-generation white settler in what was then British India, where, ironic now, given her fear of heights, she spent the long hot summers in Himalayan hill stations, where the mountains capped 6,000 meters. The idea that there could be other intelligent life in our galaxy was self-evident to her. In her heyday as an investigator, Margaret had a direct line to parliamentarians, appearing on BBC television, and was in regular contact with British aerospace. She still featured regularly on the pages of local newspapers as a woman in search of mysteries, and as founder of the Welsh Fellowship of Independent Ufologists, she remained active with many friends in ufology but the drawing digital era was elbowing her out. Colleagues were starting to challenge her online to view her as a relic of a bygone age. She soldiered on, sticking up notices in shop windows, giving talks in community halls, motoring around with her doting husband to chase leads, and striking up conversations in hairdressers and supermarkets. In July 1991, a friend of hers had passed on an intriguing lead. A nurse called Pat Evans had seen something strange up on the Berwyn Mountains in 1974, on the night of an earthquake and meteor shower. Margaret had heard reports of earthquakes coinciding with UFOs. In fact, she had a theory that ufo knots her term for the pilots of alien spacecraft, knew about them in advance and came down because of them. She also had a dim recollection of an article in the Flying Saucer Review about a mysterious explosion and strange lights on a Welsh mountain many years ago, She was keen to investigate, so drove with two UFO hunting colleagues to Pat's village, Sanderfell, a picturesque clutch of houses beside an ancient bridge over the River Dee, to interview the nurse about the events of 20 years ago. In her 30s at the time of the event, Pat appeared eminently believable to Margaret, who had learned to rely on her instincts about such things. Most importantly, The intervening years had done nothing to cloud her memories of the night, which she shared freely. At 8.38 p.m. on the 23rd of January, 1974, she was in her kitchen, where the range stove was gurgling on full blast. One of these days it's going to explode, Pat's husband said, of the irascible appliance. But when she heard a loud concussion, she leapt off her feet. Oh my God, it's happened! But the stove was undamaged, and the house looked intact. What was that? shouted her teenage daughters, Diane and Tina, in a state of agitation. Pat couldn't say, but she thought the explosion had emanated from the Berwin Mountains. She tried unsuccessfully to contact the village policeman, but eventually got through to someone at the district headquarters in Colwyn Bay, a seaside town 40 miles north. Yes, we've had reports of an explosion of sorts, and we're not sure what's happened, the officer on duty said. Could it be an aircraft? Pat asked. It could be anything, really. We don't know, the o- officer replied. Pat and her daughters, who were also trained in first aid, drove onto the mountain to see if they could help. The Berwyn range stretched away to their left, a row of creeping giants. The girls became afraid. What if there were bodies? Blood? At the wheel, Pat remained stolid until she got her first clear look at the mountaintops. Then she stopped the car in disbelief. Sitting on the shoulder of the closest peak, Catter Berwin was a round, brilliantly illuminated reddish-orange ball. They sat watching it aghast. At one point, Pat opened the car's window, but there was no sound. The object had no perceivable windows or doors. It was just a well-defined and uniformly colored reddish-orange circle that sat on the mountainside and glowed, like a huge spherical ember. Then Pat noticed smaller white lights around it, vehicle lights perhaps. The large circle changed color several times before their eyes, from red to yellow to white, then back to red. They watched it for what felt like 10 to 15 minutes before Pat decided to drive home. It was clearly not a plane crash, and it appeared that other people were already at the scene. They drove home mystified, unable to get the object out of their minds. After she interviewed Pat, Margaret knew one thing. Her fear of heights would have to be summoned for this case. Now, as she made one last attempt at cracking a UFO case, she suddenly felt compelled to overcome it. Before she could change her mind, she asked the nurse to guide them up the mountain. It was a squally overcast day, and leaves danced as they fell from the russet and gold trees. It was still light outside, but dusk would soon be approaching. Margaret watched anxiously from the passenger seat window as they crossed the stone bridge. Turning sharply uphill, the cottages and demarcated areas of land started to fall away. At the top of the hill, the women found themselves at the same expanse of Heather moorland where Pat had been two decades before. Margaret felt the exposure keenly. The only signs of modern man were the milky white outlines of domesticated Welsh mountain sheep. There, Pat pointed out the spot on the mountain where the UFO had been. Margaret began jotting notes about how long the journey had taken and making a sketch map of the area. Back home, Margaret called her boss, Jenny Randalls, the director of investigations at Bufora, to relay the nurse's story. To Margaret's surprise, she learned that it was not the first time Randalls had heard about the Berwin incident. Months after it happened. Randalls had received a typed letter in the post from the Aerial Phenomenon Inquiry Network, a shadowy group that provided no return address. It read like a parody of bad spycraft. A tall humanoid aliens traveling in a flying saucer had landed in North Wales on the 23rd of January, it claimed, and Appen was preparing to share their case report. A cassette tape accompanying the letter, which played a bizarre medley of Nazi marching tunes, excerpts from news broadcasts about UFOs, drunk-sounding Welshmen. And an American voice who claimed to be the supreme commander of Appen. Whoever was behind it styled themselves as a group of non secret neo Nazi alien human emissaries, and it was simply too bizarre for the UFO community to swallow. When Appen started making personal threats against Randalls and other ufologists, she wrote them off as callous crackpots. Alarmingly, Pat's testimony gave Appen's claim that aliens had landed that January night new significance. Citing Margaret's interview with Pat, "'Randalls wrote a colorful article for Bufora's magazine. "'The nurse's testimony was hugely significant. "'She was a pillar of the community whose word would not be questioned, "'someone who was used to keeping a calm head in in a crisis. "'Besides all of that, it wasn't just the nurse who'd seen the object, "'but her two daughters as well. "'There was even evidence of a cover-up, based on Margaret's notes. "'On the way down the mountain, the nurse and her daughters "'had been stopped by soldiers who insisted they leave the area immediately.' It was an incredible revelation. The resulting article was shared widely by UFO enthusiasts across the country and set light to a powder keg of conspiracy theories and accounts of alien bodies littering the mountainside. It was the 1990s, and Britain was heading for UFO mania. The Berwin incident, cynics wrote, was something Britain's ufologists had been longing for. Finally, they had their own Roswell, complete with the state cover-up. Margaret sent Randall's article to Pat, who called her back in a state of agitation. It is well known amongst those who report for a living that publication of details reveals in an intimate interview can send a once-willing witness into a panic, even causing the witness to recant certain facts in order to avoid further attention. Margaret couldn't say whether that was the case, but contrary to what she was sure the nurse told her, Pat insisted she had seen no one on her way home that night, and she demanded Margaret correct the article. Margaret did not own a tape recorder and kept only brief notes— but these appeared to back up the claims made in the article that the nurse said she was she had seen soldiers that night. Margaret decided to contact the younger researchers who had been with her to ask what they recalled. To Margaret's relief, one of them was adamant that the nurse said she had seen soldiers. The other, who's suffering hearing loss due to his days as a DJ, hadn't heard much of the interview to begin with. No, Margaret was sure Pat had told her about the military men, and so a new possibility dawned on her. Could the police or Ministry of Defense have told the nurse to keep quiet after the article came out? Reports of Men in Black went back almost as far as the flying saucer story itself, and Margaret had reason to believe that these hidden powers had spent decades systematically silencing witnesses of UFOs and other paranormal phenomenon. Soon after, Margaret was in a shop photocopying an artist's impression of the UFO Pat described on Berwin, when the woman behind the counter seemed transfixed by it. The woman apologized for prying and explained that she, too, had gone to the Berwin Mountains that night and had seen precisely the same reddish, well-defined objects sitting on the mountainside. Not only that, her car had been turned back by a police roadblock. Encouraged, Margaret hired a community hall in the town of Bala and struck up notices on wooden telegraph poles to alert people to her inquiry. What happened that night in 1974? Back in the 60s, she had appeared regularly on the UFO public speaking circuit. The community hall was far smaller than venues she was used to, but that didn't make it any easier, standing up in front of a hall packed with farmers and agricultural workers, retirees, and the children of late relatives who claimed to have seen something that night. There was a hush as Margaret, the small but commanding UFO lady, addressed the room. She spoke of the significance of the case and encouraged people to tell her what they saw that January night 20 years earlier. Suddenly, the room was a buzz as people stretched their hands up and jockeyed to speak over one another. Out of their mouths spilled stories of military convoys roaring through the area around midnight, cars backing up on the mountainside trying to catch a glimpse of the UFO, and strange red lights elsewhere. One gentleman, an amateur astrologist, had written a detailed description of a reddish-orange orb in his diary at the time. The barmaid at a local hotel recounted how glasses had flown from the shelves, and that the next day, taciturn strangers in dark suits had turned in for a whole week, spending every day up on the mountain. Overwhelmed and struggling with the Welsh accents, Margaret asked people to write their contact details so she could conduct proper interviews. In the weeks that followed, almost every day, the postman would deliver a handwritten letter from someone who'd been at the meeting or heard about the UFO lady. Out of fear, perhaps, many of the authors chose to remain anonymous. The retraction about Pat having been stopped by soldiers on the mountain damaged Margaret's professional standing, and she could not afford to make another mistake. What Margaret needed now was another reliable, independent witness to what Pat had seen, which would help convert the nurse's claims into the sort of evidence that would stand up in a court of law. From there, she could build her case to convince both the cynics and believers. Margaret continued her work. She approached police and military sources about the Berwyn incident and acquired a copy of the police report from the night, but it revealed little of significance. At the same time, a number of cynics, or debunkers as they are commonly called, had been attracted to the case and wanted to dispel all claims of paranormal activity. The mainstream media repeatedly showcased these cynics' opinions while excluding researchers like Margaret from the debate. A potentially explosive break crossed Margaret's desk in 1996. A known source passed along information allegedly collected from a retired, highly-ranking military officer who went by a pseudonym of James Prescott. The officer, Margaret Source claimed, had been deployed to Pat's village in North Wales. Soon after the explosion, he and a small team had driven up and collected a number of oblong coffin-shaped boxes before driving them to Porton Down, the UK government's most secretive science park. There scientists had opened them, Inside, Prescott had seen two dead aliens who conformed to the description of those seen at Roswell in New Mexico. Small, thin humanoid beings with skin-covering skeletal frames, five to six feet tall. These beings are colloquially known as grays due to their skin color and account for over 40% of reported alien sightings in America. Margaret had misgivings about the information. The source was feeding her. The officer was refusing to meet in person. He refused even to provide his real name and aspects of the story just didn't add up. Maybe, just maybe, though, there was some truth in this. The military man did not actually see a crash UFO himself, but claimed that, some time later we joined up with the other elements of our unit, who informed us that they had also transported bodies of alien beings to Porton down, but said their cargo was still alive. Nothing came of it, and Margaret was still looking into the claims of the enigmatic James Prescott when, in November 1996, she received a call from Mike Seville, a gentleman in the south of England. Mike and his wife had been living in a farmhouse on the edge of Sanderfell, close to Pat's house, when they had felt a terrible rumbling. They had stood on the steps to an old slate barn and watched as a bright, clearly defined orange circle came down to rest on the mountainside, some three miles from their house. It hovered on the horizon for about half an hour, then dropped out of view. He didn't see any small white lights as Pat had, and he didn't see any military activity, but it was clearly as far as he was considered a UFO. Later, a local man came to Margaret with a pile of notes and an annotated map that was soft and yellow from age and handling. The documents had been given to him by five retired professionals, including a solicitor and a doctor. These men, the local claimed, had independently witnessed an alien spacecraft crashing that night. Using their illustrious standing and professional networks, they had discovered that the Royal Navy had engaged two UFOs that night, which had risen from the waters of the Irish Sea. The smaller of the two UFOs had reared up into the sky, while the larger one retaliated, zapping a naval ship and killing a number of its crew, whose deaths were presumably covered up. The larger UFO then took off towards North Wales, with fighter jets in pursuit. It flew over the island of Anglesey and the university city of Bangor before turning south towards Snowdonia National Park. Finally, amongst the snowy peaks, a fighter pilot had hit his target— and the UFO started to descend, zigzagging wildly before crashing on the western slopes of Cater Berwyn. At this point, the gentleman had seen the alien spacecraft lifted onto a military transporter, while aliens with large heads and eyes wearing jumpsuits, which Margaret, Margaret recognized from their description as greys, surrendered and were driven down the hill. The moment Margaret heard the story, she knew it was improbable. She conceded that parts of their story jogged with other reports she'd heard over the years, of military jets chasing UFOs and there being underground bases for UFOs in the UK. Meanwhile, more alleged military sources contacted her, claiming that they too had seen or heard of aliens being retrieved from the bare ones and taken to government facilities. The theory that a spacecraft had crashed was getting more and more attention in the specialist UFO press. The internet was emerging as a tool for research and publication, and the field of ufology was in rapid transition. Andy Roberts, who was enjoying a rising reputation in UFO circles as a professional irritant and skeptic, was making great progress on the case. Among his findings, he had discovered that in 1997, in the nearby county of Staffordshire, a tent with a hunting lamp inside had been mistaken for a UFO, a perfect example of how Miss misperception could reframe an unidentified but prosaic visual source as something otherworldly. Had Pat the nurse similarly been looking at a hunter's lamp? He and others exchanged their views on a website, UFOlogy in the UK. Many of them were disparaging of Margaret Fry. And when a young gentleman named Scott Felton, a newcomer to UFO research, started asking these questions about the Bearwin case, they were quick to disregard Margaret's research as just the rannings of an old woman. As Scott recalls, Scott felt they seemed all too eager to dismiss the story, so he contacted Margaret to see for himself. When Margaret read Scott's polite letter expressing an interest in her work, worries about her age, mistakes, and critics dissipated. She felt like Dana Scully once more, hot on the heels of the truth. She invited Scott to visit her bungalow to go through her research notes. Scott was a marksman and gamekeeper, trained to breed and protect animals for conservation and sport hunting purposes. He was some 30 years younger than Margaret, and respectfully deferential, a quiet but fervent believer in aliens. Ever since he had become interested in the Berwin case, Scott had wondered whether government intelligence agents were watching him. He had recently been arrested for shooting and dismembering a cow, a crime he did not commit and was able to produce an alibi for. Could this have been an attempt to warn him off the case? Margaret said yes, this was possible, and produced a mountain of documents for him to browse through, folders, scribbled-on paper scraps, and notebooks, all brimming with a bewildering array of information related to the Berwyn case. Scott was struck by the unexpected openness and trust from this elderly woman, who was at once childishly naive and determinedly cynical. He was new to ufology, but felt convinced that what they needed was not more information but less. They needed to sift out and discard anything questionable, including all anonymous testimonies and focus on the facts. Scott drove up the mountain to retrace the nurse's steps for himself. Alone on the desolate moorland, buffeted by wind, his curiosity deepened. Virtually none of the so-called ufologists writing about crash landings and alien bases in North Wales had bothered to stand out here and consider the feasibility of their claims. It was ridiculous to think that a UFO had crashed here, and that government agencies had somehow removed the debris without there being witnesses to it. The excess was dreadful. To remove any trace of the impact would have taken weeks. Scott realized with a jolt what was missing. Of all the researchers, not one had truly got to know the terrain, walked the land, and watched how the light up there behaved. There was no way that what Pat had seen was actually a tent lit up by torchlight, as Andy Roberts had, had claimed. Scott wandered around on the shelf for over two hours, slowly discounting 90% of the theories that existed on the internet. All of the research and information to date had focused on Kater Burnwin, the mountain closest to the village of Sandrislo, but the nurse had clearly been looking at Kater Berwin, which no one could have seen from the village. His curiosity was later tinged with anger as he thought how hoaxers, lazy researchers, and people with fixed agendas buried the facts. UFO research turned out to be compelling work, and with Margaret's guidance, Scott returned every few weeks to the Berwyn Mountains to continue what he had started. He hiked up the passes that had been inaccessible to Margaret and searched for signs of disturbed Earth, finding nothing. He even tramped through Heather for miles to the spot where Pat had been looking at and then moved around with a headlamp powered by a car battery until it was dark, while a friend videoed his experiment from where Pat had been standing. The headlamp was just a speck on the horizon and could never, no matter what the weather conditions, be described as a huge pulsating orb. When rival Andy Roberts published his version of the events in a book, The UFO That Never Were, Scott was incensed. Roberts wrote that, on on evidence available, it is certain that the nurse saw the poachers with their lamping lights at the point they met and talked to the police. But the hunting party, or poachers, weren't even on the mountain then, Scott wanted to scream. Robert's book was a blow. Suddenly, it felt like even Pat's testimony, the most incontrovertible account of a UFO, was being disregarded as bunk. They went back to Margaret's reams of notes. Multiple people, not just the nurse, had claimed to see a huge glowing circle hovering on the mountain that night. But they were all either dead or uncontactable. Scott felt certain that nothing had crashed on the mountain. There was simply no evidence for it. But nor was there much evidence for anything else. The absence of official documents relating to the incident was remarkable, and Scott felt reason to suspect a cover-up. Scott wrote multiple times to the British Geological Survey requesting information on the incident, but was told that they had nothing. He wrote to the police and the Royal Air Force. The police told him that they had destroyed the records of the night in line with their policy, and the Royal Air Force claimed to have no reports of UFOs that night. It would not be the first time a UFO event had been covered up by authorities in Britain. Prime Minister Winston Churchill had taken the issue so seriously that he commissioned weekly reports during the 1950s, the dawning of the space age, and insisted UFO sightings be kept secret to prevent mass panic. Scott worried it may have already been too late to obtain documentary evidence. When he heard that Robert had acquired a copy of the police log, as well as other documents related to that night thanks to some sort of preferential treatment by the British Geographical Society, Scott was livid. He filed a Freedom of Information request immediately, but received a response saying the documents didn't exist. This compounded his feelings that everyone was conspiring to conceal the truth. Soon after this, Margaret suffered a stinging defeat. A different television producer was interested in her work, and she had shared what she knew about the five professionals who claimed to have seen aliens landing. This television producer was able to verify that they had invented the story as an amusing ruse over copious pints of ale. She thought about the old map that had convinced her so easily to believe in them, and how they must have faked it. It was difficult to face the fact that she had spent years as the butt of a mean-spirited prank. The principle that guided her to believe those that had reason to trust had failed her. Taking one last pass through Margaret's notes, Scott spotted a record of a phone call with Mike Saville back in 1996, shortly after Margaret had interviewed the nurse. Margaret remembered the interview and the fact that Saville had been living in the south of England at the time. Could they try again to contact him? Scott asked. If genuine, he could be a very significant witness, and one that she had overlooked at the time. Margaret thought Savile had been living with his mother in, in Bournemouth back in the 90s, so with no telephone number or address for him, Scott looked up every Savile in Bournemouth area and handed Margaret a list. By chance, the first person she called was Savile's mother, who said her son had moved back to Wales. In the summer of 2014, Margaret and Scott met Saville at the farm where he'd been living back in 1974, and he told the story in person. Their whitewashed slate cottage had perched on a steep incline above the village of Sanderfell, where the nurse lived, and it had a clear view of the mountaintops. Saville and his wife were reading when the slate-walled house had started to tremble and shake. Saville stepped out of the front door, where he spotted a bright, circular light in front of him. It was orange and had a defined edge, like the falling sun. The couple, whose baby was asleep upstairs, were terrified. They bundled the baby into a carrier and rushed to their neighbor's farm, which had a telephone line to hear reports of mayhem in the village. They then walked back to Savile's house and, at 9.10 p.m., they stood gazing at this curious ball of light as it hung on the horizon. The thing had been so huge they thought the world was coming to an end. At 9.20 p.m., the object sunk down below the horizon and disappeared. Hearing Saville describe this for the first time, Scott could scarcely believe his ears and unhurriedly unfolded the ordnance survey maps of the area. He bracketed Saville and Pat's possible sight lines on the map and then checked the elevation of the hills where they intersected. Sure enough, in between Saville and, and Caterberwin, there was a smaller hill. The mountainside behind it would have been visible to Pat, but not to Saville. He could therefore say that some certainty that the object must have dipped down out of Savile's view, but remained on the mountainside at least until 10 p.m. when Pat saw it. The timelines and sight lines dovetailed perfectly. They drove to the spot where the nurse and her daughters had stopped, a spot Scott knew now knew well. It was overcast, and the peaks were clearly visible. Scott peered through the telescopic sights of his rifle, then studied his ordnance survey map again. Simple geometry suggested that, based on the light cast by the object, it was spherical and huge by human standards, as much as 22 meters in diameter. That'd be about 60 feet. Scott later went on foot to inspect the location and search for signs of disturbed land. Some 40 years had gone by, he reminded himself, trying to quell the foolish hope that these visitors had left behind some clue. Sure enough, he found nothing but grass, gorse, and sheep, and fox poo. He was nevertheless eminently pleased. Savile's interview presented a major breakthrough in the case. Independently corroborating reports of simultaneous sightings like this were unusual and something the debunkers would struggle to ignore. At the end of their interview with Savile, Scott looked fondly at Margaret, his partner, friend, and mentor. This is in the bag, he said to her with a wry smile. Margaret maintained her composure. She had become sage in her old age and was so comfortable with her beliefs that she no longer sought the validation of major breakthroughs. What Saville had told them was just more of what she had already known. Having compiled all of the available evidence, Scott believes today that a UFO had been landing and taking off repeatedly in the days and weeks leading up to the night of January 1974. Not wishing to generate widespread panic, government intelligence operatives chose the night of the meteor shower to conduct a covert operation to shoo it off, using the meteorites as cover. I know it sounds dafty," he concedes with a smile. He recognizes that the jigsaw puzzle will likely never be complete. No one has managed to adequately explain what Pat saw that night. Pat herself, now in her 80s, remains mystified by it. As science continues to unpack the universe's blueprints, Margaret's half-century of research may become a valuable resource, a window onto one of the planet's most enduring mysteries and one of the greatest sagas of our age. Now, folks, it's, it's, it's a really fascinating case, as you've heard, And uh, the bulk of what I've just read to you came from an article written by Jessica Hatcher-Moore, which I will uh, put a link in the show notes. But um, as I say, this case, uh, you know, in investigating it, I've learned a huge amount. Uh, You know, I knew a bit about it before, but it's really been interesting. Now, the MOD's explanation for this, the official explanation... Uh, is that declassified Ministry of Defense documents also suggest the incident was caused by the combined effects of an earthquake and a meteor. The Institute of Geological Sciences, now the British Geological Survey, reported that a magnitude 3.5 earthquake was felt at 8.38 p.m. that night over a wide area of northern Wales and as far as Form B in England, 13 miles north of Liverpool. It was not immediately identified as an earthquake, hence the police investigation. However, the magnitude of the shock was such that it had been due to an earthquake crash. The resulting crater would have been large enough to be easily visible. The unusual lights reported may have been simply the meteor, but may have also included the phenomenon known as earthquake lights. Now, some of the other claims are that uh, if it can be argued that there was no alien craft, then just what does lie behind the longevity and tenacity of these persistent claims? Could it have been the crash of a secret military test craft, such as one of the Flying Triangles, which has dominated UFO lore throughout the 1990s, or perhaps a failed missile test from the rocketry range at nearby Aberporth? A hoax even, or something far more complicated, and if it is any of these, then why have the claims of UFOs, alien cadavers, and military cover-ups persisted for nearly 50 years? What could possibly explain the glows and beams of light seen on the mountain? They were swiftly dismissed as the villagers' imaginations, shooting stars, or more ludicrously as people out poaching hares. If Eppens were hoaxers, then they displayed an uncanny and detailed knowledge of both ufology in general and Bearwin Mountain incident in particular. Some researchers have speculated that Eppen may have been part of a government cover-up, using UFO mythology to spread disinformation and so divert attention from secret weapons testing. Appen also issued similar enigmatic communications in conjunction with other UFO events, notably the Rendlesham Forest incident. Now, there have been some further investigations by a Russ Kellett. One woman told him that she lived very close at that time. She said that her dad worked for the Ministry of Defense, and on that night she heard an enormous bang. She and her brother were told to go back to bed. Later in the evening, she could hear people talking in the house about making calls. When she looked out the window, she saw something large being loaded onto the back of a truck, although she did not know what it was. She claimed there were a lot of soldiers in the area. Years later, her dad told her a Russian ship in the Irish Sea had fired a missile in the wrong direction and hit something which came down and was taken away by the military. Another woman claimed her husband was in the military and knew about the incident. She said her husband told her a Russian submarine had fired at a UFO in the Irish Sea and hit a RAF jet which came down. She claimed her husband told her the military knew there was something going on with UFOs in the area. Another, another man claimed he was in the military and had been working in a team at one end of the A-5 and claimed something catastrophic had gone wrong with an underground base that was not manned by people of this world. Finally, Mr. Kellett said an old man claimed that he had been working with the RAF and NASA and had worked worked out a new weapon to bring down, quote, bogies or UFOs and it had been used successfully on that night. Now, Jenny Randalls, which you've heard me mention before, was a frequent visitor to the region in the late 1970s, staying at the San Drislo area for weeks at a time. She recalls the locals speaking to her about military activity on the mountains in the wake of some, of, some form of crash-like event. Jenny Randalls lectured on the case at the 1994 and Times Unconvention and mentioned the anomalous radiation count at M- Multi Circle. Following her lecture, she was approached by science correspondent from the Sunday Express. He mentioned rumors of leukemia cluster among children in the Bala area, which had arisen in the years following the Berwin incident. At the time he connected it with possible leaks from a nearby nuclear power station, but could not prove it. In light of later claims of UFO crashes, or secret military hardware, it could be implied that whatever had crashed had possibly been radioactive in nature and sufficient strength to affect human organisms. Now, folks, there are a few things here, uh, you know, where it can be quite difficult to separate the truth from fiction or vice versa. So there are claims by some of the villagers that there were two earthquakes on the night, fairly close together, but, um, you know, both of similar strength. Now generally when you have an earthquake and you have an aftershock, let's say one is a magnitude four, very rarely would you have a second one at that strength. It might be a magnitude two or a one point one point5 they tend to descend in strength as you have uh, aftershocks now as as you've seen stated here as well you know uh, the claims that these were the lights of, of poachers out looking for rabbits uh you know was pretty pretty strongly disproven. But it still continues to this day to be one of, those, uh, one of those things that sticks, like the story of weather balloons and uh, you know lights in the sky and other things that you hear in some of these other UFO cases. Once a skeptic debunker or someone who's more in the mainstream makes a claim about something like this, generally it sticks. Whereas if it's the other way around and you claim something more fantastic, it tends to be very quickly hushed up or explained away. So what are we left with here? The official story of two earthquakes and a meteor shower? Testing of a top-secret craft? Russian missile? Poacher's lights? Or maybe, just maybe, something beyond our earthly codification? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope that you uh, really enjoyed that that story, the, uh, the case of the Berwyn Mountain UFO, also known as Ross Welch. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's been something that, um, I've heard a lot of and it was really interesting to explore it, do some, uh, investigation and find out some new things. As I say, you know, I, I always do when I do these cases. So it's been a pleasure covering it for you. Uh, don't forget that the next episode will be on melon heads. So, um, you know, again, I'll, I'll make sure to, uh, do my due diligence, do my investigations for you. Um, if you've got any questions, of course, you can always drop me a message at uh, the Paranormal Sun at Instagram, or you can send me an email at the Paranormal Sun at gmail.com. Aside from that, folks, I hope that you have a brilliant rest of your week. I'll be with you again as soon as I can. And to quote Art Bell, a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter which does reside within may not be reached. Take care, folks.